Hello and welcome back to So You Got a LifeSci Degree. We're your hosts, Lisa and Farida, two LifeSci undergrad students trying to navigate our future careers. This is episode four, and we're talking to Siba Anam about his role as a research proposals facilitator at Ryerson University. How are you doing, Farida? I'm doing pretty good. Um, I think this is like the last probably really nice weather week in Montreal. So I've just been taking a lot of time outside. Mm. Um, and I have a squirrel story to follow up last week. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, this week I was like working outside for a little bit, working on an assignment um, on campus. And then the squirrel comes up like real close to me, up to my <laughs> leg. Like his tail's almost Wait, touching my leg. Yeah, like what? super close. That's crazy. Does he have no like common sense? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that squirrel's gonna mm, roadkill five days. I'm predicting it. They're just so like brave. Yeah. And so, yeah, I like move my leg a little bit and then he like jumps out of the way. And then I was like, okay, cool. And then I like turn just to see like where the squirrel went. And uh-huh. he's just like sitting behind me, like, hey, oh so God. like, is food off the table? Like, what is going on here? Hello. <laughs> like what 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 do you think i came here to do woman yeah exactly i was just like wow the audacity (laughs) (laughs) that's ridiculous yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i don't know maybe maybe they are getting braver another thing that freaks me out about squirrels is that they're they know how to cross roads yeah yeah like they know when a car is coming that's bad and they know once they get onto the grass they're safe they know the cars don't go on the grass yeah i think like urban animals in general just like are way smarter than like their forest living counterparts (laughs) what do you mean that's totally a thing like raccoons that live in cities are way way better at like navigating um different challenges put out by scientists than like raccoons that live in forests Yeah, but that's because scientists are human-centric. So raccoons that live in urban environments are probably more familiar with human patterns of thinking and problem-solving. Yeah, okay. I mean, it all depends on what you define intelligence as. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty fair. I mean, off-topic, but there was that one Kurtzgesagt video, which is a YouTube channel, and they do science educational videos, and they made this one video about intelligence. And Mm. the interesting point I took away from that video was that intelligence is a tool for solving problems and for staying alive. Mm-hmm. So if you don't need intelligence to stay alive, then yeah. it's all fine, you know? Yeah, pretty fair. How's your week been? It's also good. I have kind of an interesting story. So I'm not sure if I've mentioned him on the podcast before, but I had this professor last semester whose name is Dr. Stone. He teaches evolution and he goes by Doc Rock. Get it? <laughs> and, you know, everyone loves him. He's a great professor, cares a lot about his work. And he is currently teaching Biology 1 MO3, which is the introductory first year course for evolution and ecology. And I happen to be a TA for that course um, for this semester. And because he is so enthusiastic about his teaching and wants to make students feel comfortable and, you know, it's hard having your first year being entirely online with your first year in university, he has been creating the series of videos where one of his lab students films him walking around campus and just telling random stories and kind of showing the campus, like kind of introducing first years to what campus is. Yeah. And it is adorable and it is utterly useless if you actually want to 
navigate campus <laughs> <laughs> because there seems to be no order in which they visit the buildings oh and God. there's no like filming of the in-between parts it's just like <laughs> bam you're at bsp bam you're at mdcl how did we get here who knows <laughs> um but I was watching it, and so the student is not actually featured in the video, okay. but I kind of recognized her voice because she was in the class that I took with him, mm-hmm. and I kind of talked to her outside of class too, and so I messaged her, and I was like, hey, was that you in the video with Doc Rock? And she was like, wow, it was, um, and we chatted for a bit, and then I asked, oh, have you already filmed the second one? I was just curious. I wasn't insinuating anything. But I think she took that to mean that I was asking if I could be involved. (laughs) (laughs) And so she was like, oh, we already did. But if you want to be involved, there's still time to do the third one. Oh, my God. And and I was like, no, no, ah, but I want, but I can't, but I want. (laughs) And she was like, you should totally do it. It would be so fun to do a cameo with the TA of the course. (laughs) And I was thinking, well, I was planning on maybe doing a short visit to Hamilton by car during reading week anyway. Mm-hmm. And so it might all kind of work out. <laughs> so um, no promises, totally might not happen. But there might just be a small part of the video where he swings over to like me sitting by a tree. And it's like, oh, Lisa, what are you doing here? I'm like, oh, just no, you know, grading assignments, you know. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> so... Yeah, that's probably the most interesting thing of my week. Yeah, we were talking about that, like, between the floor fellows, about how pretty much all of our first years are not going to know what the campus looks like in second year as well. That's true. Oh, no, it's going to be chaos. You're going to have, like, double the number of first years. Yeah, basically. So we're doing, like, a McGill scavenger hunt event where they basically have to run around campus and find (laughs) an around building. (laughs) I saw that. I saw that. You, Marina posted it on Facebook, one of your friends. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, very cute, very cute. (laughs) All right, so you ready to interview a guest? Yeah, let's get into it. Sivat is a research proposals facilitator at Ryerson University. He supports faculty members with grant programs, upholds ethical standards, and networks with the government, private industries, and nonprofit organizations. Sivat completed his Bachelor's of Science in Cell Biology and Anatomy at McGill University. He also completed a Master's degree in Experimental Medicine at McGill University. Thank you for joining us today, Sivat. Thanks for having me. So the first thing we kind of wanted to ask you was just what your job is, because just the title research proposals facilitator doesn't, people don't automatically know what that means. So can you just describe what your role is at Ryerson? Sure. Yeah, I think the title is purposely abstract because it's kind of a a bit of a catch-all. My primary job is to help researchers Um, build their grant proposals that they submit to various funding agencies or corporations to secure funding for their work. So what I do is I essentially try to um, understand their research, um, help help them think of bigger and better ways to improve it, and how we could potentially go beyond academia and involve the government or corporations to kind of uh, build better ideas for the better of the betterment of the country in general. That sounds really cool. Could you possibly give us like an example of um, a project that you worked on? Sure. Um, one of the greatest things about my jobs is I actually get to work on projects from all different fields. So it's like every week there's something new. Um, one of the biggest projects I'm working on is kind of um, building a green energy grid for the entire country. So um, it's kind of um, it's based on the research of the professors at Ryerson, of course but um, it's kind of 
giving an idea of how Canada can move towards meeting its emission targets in 2050 and how we can build projects and ideas that can help facilitate the transition into using greener technology. That is really cool. And I think it's interesting because it's almost the opposite of being a professor, because instead of delving into one subject and doing it your whole life, you get to kind of sample different areas of research. So that's definitely really interesting. I've never heard of a role like this. So when you say that you help professors write grants and kind of further broaden their scope of research, what does that really look like? Like, what is the process of working with a professor on a grant from start to finish? For sure. So, I mean, the ideas always come from the professors. They're the ones who are so passionate about their work that they are spending their entire lives trying to build something better. So it initially comes with them reaching out to us or us reaching out to them if we think they have a great idea that we can build on. Um, Meeting with the professors one-on-one, kind of getting a grasp of what they're trying to accomplish, and then seeing what's the best way we can support them to not only simply just write their proposals or write their grants, but also to kind of go beyond the box. Because we're not necessarily specialists, we kind of have that outside of the uh, field perspective that they really appreciate. And then um, you're working with them not only to um, write the proposals, but also helping them think about, you know, who else can we involve in these projects? What other collaborators can get involved? And that often includes governments, other not-for-profit organizations, corporate organizations. So it's kind of just helping them kind of just become bigger so they're not just stuck in the lab. Yeah, especially for something like a green energy grid, I'm assuming that would involve solar panel installers, like, you know, contract workers, nonprofit organizations. So I see how that would be a lot for one professor to manage. And especially with writing grants, sometimes you want someone who has more experience with how to actually get that grant approved. So yeah, it definitely seems like an interesting and important role. For sure. I think you're absolutely right that sometimes professors don't necessarily have the scope to think outside of their field. They get so into their work. So our job is really helping them to see outside of their perspective. Um, Going off of that, like, what are your interactions with government uh, organizations and nonprofits look like when you're trying to um, bring that research into a more practical uh, use? So those interactions, um, well, during the COVID era, it goes mostly in terms of just um, meeting and talking to them and building these projects. So with governments, um, the major way that researchers in Canada get funding is through the three government funding agencies. So that's my primary interactions with government agencies and, and officials from the government is to kind of get a better idea of their programs, how best Um, we could improve our applications to ensure that they like what they're seeing and it's meeting the government's expectations as well as their goals. So that's kind of some of the bridge building that we do because researchers have their own goals and um, objectives for their research and the government has their own goals for what they want to see science and innovation go through. So we try to help bridge those two together. So that often involves meeting with government officials, understanding what they're wanting from us, and then building our applications around their objectives as well. And with not-for-profits and other corporate organizations, it's really about building commercialized products or translating the research knowledge into something that can be commercialized to help the public or in general be given to industries or the public to improve their lives. Right. That that's really cool. Yeah, so for, yeah, like for example, if you develop this new kind of solar cell that has increased efficiency, you want to 
it's one thing to develop that product, but then it's a whole other thing to be able to commercialize it and have it be used in the real world. So yeah, for sure. Um, you mentioned that there are three government funding agencies, and I was wondering if you could briefly outline those for us. For sure. So uh, I know this podcast is geared towards people with life science degrees, so most of them would be familiar with the Canadian Institute of Health Research, which is the CIHR funding mm -hmm. agency, as well as the Natural Science and Engineering Research Council of Canada, which is called NSERC for short. So those are the two that our uh, science students are usually familiar with. And the third one is the Social Science and Humanities Research Council of Canada, or SHRC. So um, those three research councils, uh, councils have um, their own funding budgets as well as their own domains. And they um, essentially look after those three areas, uh, health research, engineering and natural sciences, and social sciences and humanities. Mm -hmm. And I guess that kind of ties into another question that we had for you, because when Farida first described your role to me, she described it as your job is to allocate grant money between research projects at the university. And so just from the past five minutes of talking to you, I realized that it's, it's more than that. But on the aspect of allocating grant money, do you have a role in that? And if so, what does that role look like? So th that role is more towards my office in general. Um, I work for the Office of the Vice President of Research and Innovation, and our office in, in general is responsible for facilitating the entire research environment at our university. So I wouldn't say I'm personally responsible for necessarily allocating the money. My job is more to help researchers secure the funding, um, and then it's up to the researchers to either allocate the money towards their projects or us to kind of help them. We do help them with their budgeting. So that, in a way, is how I can help um, researchers kind of find the best ways to use funding once we have secured it. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. So one of the things that we like to ask on this podcast is, what does the day-to-day -day of your job look like? Because as much as you Google, you really can't get that on the internet. And we think that's such a big part of the job, really, because that's what your schedule looks like day to day. And that's a big part of your life. So yeah, we would we would be really grateful if you could give us kind of a rundown, like what time do you get to work? When do you do a lunch break? How, when, how like how is your day broken down in terms of meetings, work on your own, stuff like that? So I'm really fortunate because um, I, I do work from home. So the flexibility that my job gives me is kind of immense. Um, it can it can change on a daily basis. It can be one day I'm working um, like a regular nine to five job and another day I'm working evenings or mornings and things like that. But on a typical day, I usually start with morning meetings with my entire team where we kind of give updates on the projects we're working on, how they're going. And then we also get a chance to catch up with each other, which is really nice, especially during this time when we're not next to each other. Um, obviously, before... Um, we were all sent to work from home. We were in an office space where I would go down to my um, my building where I work downtown and we'd all get to see each other and hang out, but that's not the case anymore. But we still try to emulate that even with our morning meetings. Um, after morning meetings, I usually spend a lot of time um, writing, like writing and researching. That's like the heart of my job where it comes from, understanding what the professor's research is so I can best understand how to talk about it, how to um, kind of um, comment on the way that it can be improved and give exactly what funding agencies are looking for from their research. Um, and then I really do just have meetings throughout the day where I'm meeting with professors, meeting with uh, 
um, the partner organizations we're working with or meeting with my fellow colleagues because we also get a chance to collaborate on certain projects. So that would be um, something we do often to just talk to each other to understand how we can kind of brainstorm and throw around ideas. So a typical day like that is, yeah, meetings, writing, and research. I think that's the easiest way to sum it up. All right. Thank you. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Um, when you're saying like you work sometimes in the evenings and things like that, is that like just for COVID reasons right now? Or is that like what happens even during normal times? So in um, our, our schedule is kind of flexible and weird because we really do have to follow the ebb and flow of when we're meeting certain deadlines. Okay. So when we're getting a close to deadlines, you'll be finding us working week- weekends, evenings, nights, anything. Um, we're kind of on the clock 24 hours when we're approaching um, the worst of times. But there are, of course, times when we're not doing that and it's a really chill day or week. Um, mm. But yes, yeah, so because of COVID, we have been afforded the flexibility to work on our own schedule. And that's been really nice because it allows us to kind of cope um, with um, all of the complexities that have, this uh, pandemic has brought. So if we need to do something important, we can always kind of um, move our day around on a regular basis. We don't really have to let anyone know. And that's been really great um, for being able to do this job um, now six months into the pandemic. Right, that's really amazing. And how much like autonomy do you feel like you have in this position? Like how much of it is kind of you do your own work and then come together or is it like you're really reporting to someone? No, not at all. Um, one of the greatest things about my position is I have a, a lot of autonomy. Um, when we're when I'm given a project to work on, um, I may be collaborating with um, members of my team, but often they are solo projects that you're working on our own. And we have full autonomy to do exactly what we want to do with the project. So, of course, we're working with the researchers to ensure we're following their vision and we're making sure that they're happy with whatever we're presenting. But at the end of the day, um, all the decisions I'm making, um, I do on my own. But of course, I rely a lot on my colleagues and my fellow research proposals facilitators um, to help me out in my time of need if I need them. And I'm just as available to them as well. But um, yeah, I would say almost complete autonomy. Yeah, that, that sounds really cool. This, this genuinely does sound like a unique position. And it certainly sounds like one that students don't know about because before Frida mentioned this to me I was like what do you mean people who help professors write grants or you know this kind of thing so we were wondering how did you come across this position and kind of what was your path to entering this role? For sure I think um, it it was definitely an unorthodox path Um, like so many students I had finished undergrad and um, I did it in something that I didn't necessarily see me Um, achieving a different type of career other than medicine or something related to research. So I did a master's because I thought, okay, I guess I'll try research, but uh, that didn't really, uh, wasn't really for me. So I ended up just finding um, lots of jobs kind of adjacent to research or science, uh, things I was looking for. And what interested me about this position was they said, this is, you are helping researchers, but you're not doing research. And it's more of a project management related job. It's a job where you can help people kind of go beyond what research means to them just in their lab setting. And that really spoke to me because I always found as a master's student and a graduate student, 
um, I always wanted to see what my research could do, but then there was no, no real avenue to help me kind of understand or see it. So that's kind of what I do now for researchers. I help them see where their research could go beyond the lab. So mm-hmm. um, that's, I think, what drew it to me. I found it simply by luck. One day I was looking um, through lots of universities and I came across Frierson's uh, um, job posting website and it kind of immediately caught my attention. That's really neat. And um, you mentioned that there's a lot of like, it's more of a project management role. How well do you feel you were prepared for this role before going into it? And what did you have to learn once you were there that you didn't, that you didn't know about before? Um, I had to learn a lot because um, I wasn't necessarily familiar with every aspect of it. Um, given my extensive kind of experience working um, in student associations and student councils throughout university, I felt I had a lot of experience working with university administration and in general project management that made me comfortable enough to kind of take on roles that required me to work autonomously and um, kind of help professors guide their projects. But uh, once I got to the role, I essentially had to learn how to digest an entire body of someone's research over their entire lifetime in about <laughs> an hour and or two. Uh, oh, gosh. And you have to be confident enough at that point, having just read someone's entire research work, to be like, okay, I know how I can help you. It's the, That's probably the most daunting part of the task, was learning how to do that without without uh, insulting their work in that sense, because you have to respect what they're doing. Yeah, that's that's crazy. I mean, I want to know, how did you learn how to do that? How how do you, you know, in a few hours, f- like go through the literature of this whole professor's research? Because for me personally, the hardest part of all my courses is always just reading the articles for our presentations or our reports that we have to write. It can take me somewhere from two to possibly even eight, ten hours if I'm just starting from scratch in a field I don't know anything about and I need to understand every little detail about an article. So how did you learn to be able to digest so much information in such a a short period of time? I think I get that primarily from grad school. Um, I had to read a lot of uh, research papers and articles in grad school for my own um, experiments and my own research and presentations. And I recall that always being daunting. And you're right, it takes hours to digest an entire piece of material. But what I learned as someone who's trying to help a researcher broaden their entire research perspective is I don't necessarily need to know the nitty gritty, but I need to see what big picture you have. Um, I uh, A neat trick I always learned Um, and I think most grad students or even undergraduate students do this, is you read the intro, you read the discussion, and you read the first figure, and you hope (laughs) that you've gotten everything uh, within (laughs) within that. And that's actually a really good tip, because if I don't understand what your research is about by reading your introduction and your ending and your discussion, um, then what are you trying to tell me? Because research at the end of the day, um, it has to go beyond just... uh, what you're studying. It has to be applicable. And we're trying to make research applicable to everyday life. That's not necessarily the case for everyone, but it is the case for the type of research that I personally work on in my job. So I I tend to find that that really helps. 
Right. I mean, going off of that, there's there's two aspects that I find really interesting about what you just said. The first thing is having to give professors tips. And the second thing is about creating applicable research. So kind of on the first topic, I feel this too when we're given an article and you know, the professor says you have to read this and you have to give a presentation um, and you have to write a report where you critique aspects of this article. And I'm like, how do I do that? I'm not like, I'm like, I barely know this field of research. And so how do you build up the confidence to be able to say, hey, I've read your research and I know that this is going to help you? Honestly, that's something that was really tough for me. I still find it somewhat tough having been someone who's uh, graduated um, relatively recently as well. How do you approach a professor who spent their entire life working on something and telling them, I think you need to do this better? Um, <laughs> it's not, um, it's definitely about the way you approach it. Um, my job isn't to tell them their research is done poorly or they're not thinking outside of the box. My job is to make suggestions. My job is to say, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? Um, approaching it in a way where I'm not only respectful of their work, but they also have a respect for me in knowing that I'm here to help them. I think that's what's the difference between a student speaking to a researcher sometimes as, a, as opposed to me who's a, like I'm, I'm part of the university administration, is that we have this uh, understanding that I'm here to help you improve your work as well. Students um, can do this with their professors or even their presentations as well. Like they look at it as critical thinking. If you look at it as I'm questioning not necessarily I'm questioning your research, but I'm just trying to understand other aspects of it. Researchers actually love when you ask them questions that kind of contradict their work because they want to know, oh, what am I doing? What could I be doing differently? So that would be my number one tip is don't be afraid to kind of ask questions if you don't understand something, if you don't know something about the work, because that's exactly what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. And it's good to know that professors have assistance as well with various components of their research. Because for me, one of the really daunting things about the idea of being a professor is that, wow, I'm basically in charge of a small business and have to make all these big decisions and decide where my research is going. So it's good to know that there are supports for professors out there. Um, And then kind of getting into the second thing I wanted to address was in terms of creating research that has real world applications. And I think this is kind of interesting to me because I remember when I first got into university, I was like, oh, I just want to do research for research sake because science is cool and science and discovery (laughs) and all those things. But I think over time, I've become more interested in stuff that actually has an impact because, oh, we can create this treatment for breast cancer or we can develop this technology to help low-income communities, that kind of thing. So just this is more of a philosophical discussion-y question, but yeah, just like, what are your thoughts on that? I know you mentioned that you're more interested in research with real life impacts. I, I, I personally, when I did grad school, I did a lot of wet lab research, which is really interesting and can be um, really focused on what you're doing. But what I kind of wanted to have more experiences was understanding how research could have broader applications to everyday life. And I think that's something that a lot of people would be interested in because you would like to see how you can help as many people as you can with the work that you're doing. Um, I really pride myself in the fact that um, Ryerson as a research institution um, really does uh, put a focus on making applicable research. 
So their focus has always been on involving partner organizations in the research that's conducted at the university. So I think that's what really helps with almost every project I work on is as soon as I'm working with a researcher, I'm immediately introduced to their whole network of partner organizations. These can be industrial companies, not-for-profit organizations, government or public agencies, and they're all there to create uh, something that can help the public. This can be a commercialized product, like you said, like if you're doing research on a solar panel and you're revitalizing how efficient it is, this could be a whole group of people who are working to establish that kind of project across the city or across the country. So that's what I think has been um, really exciting is that every project I work on essentially has applications because we're already working with a network of people who are willing to commercialize a product or translate the research in some way where we can build something to help people. Mm -hmm. I guess following up with your um, discussion about how Ryerson really does put a focus on the applications of the research, um, I've definitely noticed that um, just in the way that they promote different programs that they're coming out with and things like that. So if someone's interested in this position, do you, do you know if similar positions exist in other universities or even non-university institutions? Oh, definitely. Um, several institutions have robust research services offices. Um, including every university in Canada. And not necessarily all of the universities will have services like mine, where we provide direct support to the researchers. Um, but other universities, especially in Toronto and the West Coast, they definitely have it. Um, but I did want to point out that, yes, definitely not all universities provide the type of support that Ryerson has provided researchers. It's not something that I was used to um, at, at McGill even, like it's not, I didn't even hear about any such services, even though I think it's such a great way to help researchers build their research. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's cool. I guess it is unique to be able to have kind of more one-on-one -on -one support with things like grants or just a bit of a more personal connection. Um, so I guess going back to the discussion about reading articles and how it's like you know, usually a challenge at the beginning. I think one thing that really helps me is just having like a little bit of domain knowledge and having read previous stuff in a similar um, research context. So how often do you get to pick the area of research that you want to um, help the professor out in and how often does it stay consistent? I, um, it's kind of, uh, whichever, whatever requires help, I can be put projects on. Okay. I definitely think because of my background in uh, life science research, uh, I definitely get put on a lot of our health science and health research, as well as our engineering and natural sciences projects. But that doesn't mean I'm limited. Like one of the biggest projects I'm working on right now is the social science and humanities project. And those are kind of my favorite because it's so outside of the field of where I work. Mm -hmm. um, and like I mentioned, my expertise in my own education definitely helps me build better ideas, I think, or it helps me have a, um, a more unique perspective on some of the health research projects. But it also helps me have a great perspective on social science and humanities projects because I'm thinking differently. So mm -hmm. while I do get to um, kind of choose the projects I work on, um, often I'm just given any projects and you kind of find a way to fill in your perspective within each one. Okay. Have you ever um, been put on a project that you're like, this is totally out of my league. I don't really know at all what I'm doing here. Oh, definitely. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I can speak about all of them or any of them um, for confidentiality purposes. Right. But um, yes, definitely. There are uh, 
more often than not, I'm put on projects that I have no idea and I've never even heard of the concept or um, I'm just given something that is so out of left field that I know that, okay, I'll have to do some work to understand what's going on. But that's essentially what keeps it exciting because I, I honestly, every week is something new. Right. And in some ways, that's almost what your job is, is having the skill to look at something you don't know anything about and then being able to make some conclusions about it, which is exactly. pretty cool. Um, and then you mentioned that you tend to work a bit more on the more, you know, biology stuff or life side projects because you have this life science background. And so I was wondering when people hire for these kinds of positions, whether it be at Ryerson or other universities, do you know what kind of people they look for? Like, do you have to have a master's? Um, you know, like, what are the requirements for this position? Right. So um, I, a master's degree would probably be a minimum for the position I currently have. Uh, a lot of my colleagues have PhDs. Um, the qualities that this um, position really looks for, the qualifications, I should say, is the ability to understand research in, in a technical sense. So you have to be familiar with not only reading papers, understanding how um, funding agencies work in a sense of how to write grants, what grants are about, um, and experience with working with an entire network of people. I think I mentioned project management is a big part of the job, but that's because the transferable skills you need from that are, I would say, more important than your ability to write grants or your ability to read research and understand it. The biggest part of my job is to question the researchers to help build better projects. So you have to understand how to um, work as a collaborative team member. You have to understand how to work with different people from different groups. And you have to understand at the end of the day that you're trying to improve upon what's already existing. So you have to think creatively. So I think those are the three biggest qualities, more so than being the best writer or the greatest um, researcher or academic individual. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so do the people who are in this role in your office or in other universities, do they mo primarily have um, science graduate degrees or do they come from different fields or anything like that? They come from every field. Um, so they're, um, they are science degree holders. A lot of them are science degree holders because two out of the three funding agencies are related to science. Um, there are many people from social sciences and humanities as well. Um, and um, I think, yeah, that's it doesn't necessarily matter your degree per se, but it matters the level of your degree. So um, having a master's or a PhD definitely helps with this position because you're aware of the research world a bit more than an undergraduate student. However, an undergraduate student is fully capable of understanding how research works, how academic writing is. Mm -hmm. And then you mentioned that for your role right now, a master's degree is sufficient. And I'm curious, well, this is the part where it's like I'm interviewing, like, where do you see yourself in five years? But without making it sound cheesy, what are sort of your future goals? Do you see yourself staying in this position? Or do you like to do some kind of different work in the future? Um, are there any opportunities for promotion within your role that you can tell us about? Sure. I, I mean, I definitely see myself in this position for the foreseeable future. Um, I, I've, I started this job just in January of this year. So I'm oh, actually, okay. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I've, I've been at the role um, qu 
quite uh, relatively recently. However, I think I fit into it quite well to the fact that my office is extremely supportive in ensuring that um, they would like to see me continue in this role. So I do see myself working at Ryerson and in research for the foreseeable future. And that's not something I could have said before I got this job, actually. Um, I think a lot of people who finish graduate school um, and don't want to pursue further education like a PhD, um, they're often wondering, what can I even do with my degree because I'm in such a niche field? And mm -hmm. this job kind of really helped me understand that, wow, I actually have a lot of transferable skills that I learned from research that I can use mm -hmm. in positions. So I'd like to see myself um, doing this job and working at this institution for the foreseeable future. They've also made it clear that they're really supportive of me doing further education, whether that be something like an MBA um, and improving my management skills or even doing a PhD in something more related to my work. Um, that's something I've also am considering currently. So um, yeah, we'll see how it goes. But the goal is to move further in terms of um, personally just moving further in terms of how I can help build these better projects um, in a more um, perhaps in a management role or something like that. Yeah I can totally see why an MBA would be beneficial for a role like that and that would be a cool background to have like the mixture of science and business especially for your position. Right. Another thing we were curious about which kind of ties into this is when you were going through your undergrad education, what was your thought process? You know, when you went into first year, did you have some idea of what you wanted to do? When you went into grad school, why were you doing so? Um, and yeah, just kind of what was it like coming out of grad school and being and looking around and being like, well, what now? I, I think my first year of undergrad, I went in like almost every um, student in the life sciences thinking, oh, I guess I want to be a doctor. Um, <laughs> and uh, I found out very quickly from my first cadaver course that we had that I did not <laughs> oh, gosh. want to be a doctor <laughs> anymore. Um, so um, if I'm honest, my entire undergrad was a question mark after that because I had built my entire life. And I think a lot of students do this. Um, they built um, their entire life around this one goal and mm -hmm. do university and you do undergrad. And at the end of undergrad, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I thought, okay, let's do a master's. Um, so I did a master's and at the end of the master's, I was like, I have no idea what I wanna do um, because I wasn't necessarily fulfilled as much as I thought I would be doing research in the lab. Um, but I knew I was, I was always interested in management and I knew I was always interested in um, kind of project management in general. I mentioned previously that I was just really involved in undergrad and in grad school um, in my school community and setting. And I think that's what really pushed me to find a position that could utilize my science degrees, but also move me towards more management and with a bit more um, project related. So I think that's what got me um, to the position I'm in currently. That's really cool. And you mentioned a little bit about how you were really involved in undergrad. Um, just, you know, knowing you a little bit personally, I think you take a lot of pride in like working in student government and things like that. Um, how much do you think that contributed towards um, how prepared you felt for this role? And like what kind of um, things outside of school would you recommend um, doing to kind of land a position like yours? Right. I, I, you're completely right. I take a lot of pride in that. And I actually say that 
I got this job because of my involvement, not because of my degrees, um, which is kind of funny, but because for obvious reasons, I needed the qualifications of my degrees to be um, to be qualified for this job. Right. But what really pushed me over the edge um, amongst a pool of other candidates who had PhDs, who had MBAs, who had degrees more than I did, was the fact that I had worked in these settings where I was working with university administration, where I was working with large budgets, where I was working with researchers and other academics. So I think that's pushed me over. Um, I did a lot of student government work throughout my entire grad school and undergrad, like five or six years of it. And those positions really help, but those are not the only ways to get involved. I think for my position specifically, if you have experience working either with researchers, you have experience working in collaborative teams, and you have experience working in problem solving or creative thinking, those are the three things that people look for um, in this type of position. So um, I kind of got all three of those experiences from my degrees, my involvement. Yeah, that is that is kind of cool. I mean, I kind of was thinking this a few weeks ago when I realized just how big the budget of some student clubs is. Like, it's not a small thing to be the president of, for example, Insight Magazine, which publishes student artwork. They have a budget in the tens of thousands of dollars because printing a magazine is expensive. And I kind of just never realized what a cool experience that is. It's really no small thing to, you know, be like the leader of a club like that. And yeah, it's just cool that the university just gives you that opportunity and trusts you with all that money. It's yeah, it's a cool opportunity. (laughs) That's a huge responsibility too. Um, I mentioned this because my job requires me to look at budgets of a lot of these projects and these projects have million dollar budgets and the in i don't i didn't have experience working with million dollar projects doing research at the lab i had million dollar budgets working in student government and so that's where i drew that experience and that's you're right um even at the universities i went to when i was fine i was in finance roles in both undergrad and graduate school both of those institutions had million dollar budgets for undergraduate and graduate students and we are 20 year olds 19 year olds responsible for that so that puts a lot of pressure yeah and you can definitely draw on that into um, experiences that i currently have in my job thinking back uh, as an overview over the path that you took to get to the position that you're in now is there anything that you see that you wish you had done differently when pursuing this I try not to think too much about what I would have done differently because I think we're all on different journeys. That's a little philosophical, but uh, (laughs) I try not to have too many regrets in that sense. Um, I think don't be afraid to question what you actually want to do. I think a fear has kept a lot of people from wondering, oh, can I try something different or is this the only path for me? And I think that was my biggest Uh, impediment to actually doing something I enjoy doing and I like doing like my current job Mm -hmm. was I was just scared to think oh well I have to follow this one path of research it's like no you can be in science and in business and you can find something that can meld those two things together so that's kind of what I would suggest to everyone who may be listening is if you have an interest um, which can supplement your interest in science then for sure take advantage of that and you can definitely find something that'll be utilizing all of your talents. 
Right. Yeah, I'm like sitting here fully like nodding my head. I could not <laughs> agree more. <laughs> this girl wants to get out of the strictly science realm. Yeah, for sure. And I actually encourage everyone. It makes you a better scientist. It'll make you a better doctor. It'll make you a better anything if you explore other avenues as well. Because it's really rough when you've just stuck to one lane your entire life and uh, you haven't really gotten the chance to explore everything else. Okay. And the last question that we have for you is looking into the future or looking into the past because, you know, even if you are doing something that's an intersection between business and science, there's still multiple roles that fit into that category. So kind of thinking back or looking into the future, are there any other career paths that you can see yourself having pursued and still being successful at and happy in? For sure. I think um, I... I have a, will always consider careers that involve um, consulting, especially consulting not-for-profit organizations. And that's something that um, I also would encourage a lot of science students to do. There's, um, you can always join uh, management consulting associations or case competitions, things like that, that can really help you build how you creatively problem solve and how you think um, in different situations. And it's a great way to um, kind of build your life outside of science and get a bit more experience in applications. So um, I can see myself pursuing something in consulting, um, and I would love to see what other avenues are in research institutions, universities, um, that I could pursue in the future. As I mentioned, Canada has these three great funding agencies, um, and they're always looking for uh, kind of new perspectives on how to improve the entire world that is funding the research and innovation of an entire country. So um, I'm really passionate about the fact that um, the diversity and inclusion uh, of different marginalized voices in our research is really important. Uh, research in Canada has always been focused on certain groups of people, and I think that's something that needs to change. And that's something that our three funding agencies um, are committed to changing, but of course these things take time. So um, I really do want to see how I could potentially be involved in fostering that kind of change so that we have more researchers and more research that's more um, representative of the people of this country. Right. And I mean, I feel like that's a whole other topic in and of itself is just the intersection between science and kind of politics or culture. Um, so we won't get too much into that. Um, and, you know, we'll probably just wrap this up. Um, but before we do so, is there anything else you would like to add? No, I just wanted to thank you both. Um, I think you're doing a great job with this podcast. and I Aw, thank you. <laughs> and I hope that, uh, yeah, a lot of science students can get better ideas of what else they can do with their science degrees because it's definitely not limited. Yeah, I definitely haven't been shy with plugging this podcast. Like, I go to my poetry <laughs> class, which, like, 80% of the people are studying, like, English literature. And I'm like, so I have a podcast. And so that's it. <laughs> <laughs> so you can check it out. <laughs> yeah. If you would like to follow Seabat's work, you can connect with him on LinkedIn at the link in the show notes. So, you got a project you'd like to plug? Creative product idea? Wacky patented hairstyles? New student club about potatoes? If so, we'd love to advertise it on our podcast. If you're interested in having your ad here, contact us at soyougotalifesidedegree at gmail.com with the subject line podcast ad. To view our current rates, you can head over to the services tab of our Facebook page. It's a great way to get the word out about your idea while also supporting this podcast.
And we're live. So, Elisa, how do you feel about being a research proposals facilitator? I think his role is genuinely so cool. Like, I didn't want to overreact while he was talking, but oh my god. Like, I think when you described it to me, you described it as he decides how grant money is allocated well that's what i thought the role was yeah yeah based on what he told you which now i'm realizing maybe our social media post was entirely incorrect (laughs) but it's fine no one responded anyway (laughs) um but yeah like i i think it's genuinely so interesting i think it's actually a role that's required you know sometimes people look down on like quote-unquote middlemen admin roles but i don't think it's like that at all um i think it genuinely has a purpose and yeah, just I just didn't know that this kind of thing existed. What about you? Yeah, I think I'm like genuinely just so annoyed at how great our guests like positions are <laughs> and how interesting they Yeah, I was going to say all of our guests are like so successful. <laughs> yeah, and like they all like really seem to enjoy what they're doing, which is really yeah i mean i feel like that's probably partially a selection bias like if you're down to talk about your job you're probably more passionate about it in the first place that's pretty fun yeah it it is cool that we've gotten to talk to you know successful and passionate people yeah i think it really goes to show like there's a lot of things you can do that you'll still enjoy even if it's not the typical roots of like research and medicine Mm -hmm. yeah i think it was also kind of interesting that we through doing this podcast we get a bit more info about the inside deets of various industries (laughs) and in this case it's about university like I didn't know that there were these departments that kind of facilitate research funding now that I think about it it makes sense Mm -hmm. but it's just kind of cool to get more insider knowledge I fully realize this today, which is that I'm more of the hard science. Like when we interview guests, I'm more interested in guests that do things that are more like kind of directly applying their knowledge of what they learned in school. Wait, you're realizing this today? This is yeah, like- I'm, reala- I'm realizing like fully, like, listen, Frida, there's a difference between knowledge and understanding and I'm understanding <laughs> this today. Um, so so like, maybe with the exception of Jessica for the medical illustration, just because that's, I have an interest in art, mm-hmm. but for the most part, yeah, I'm more like physiotherapy, research, um, like field research, like that's what I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. But then you, on the other hand, every time we have a guest that does something that's like an intersection between science and business, you're like, you, let's yeah. have a private conversation, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, I think so for sure. Yeah, so I think that makes for a bit of a good balance because that way is if we have a guest who their career I'm maybe less personally interested in, you're, 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 you might be like a bit more interested in it. So then you can ask more of those questions that are like the questions you would actually ask if you're interested in maybe pursuing that career. Yeah, I think a big reason of the a big reason I'm interested in the kind of it's more like science and policy, I would say, is really exemplified by like the whole climate change issues going on where like Mm. I think you actually brought this to my mind where you were like yeah a lot of climate change issues now are really just about like politics Mm. and the economy Mm -hmm. and stuff like that it's really not that much about the science because we definitely have the tech it's about implementing it and on a large scale Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that to me is like a very intriguing problem and something I want to be working on so yeah I think that's where my interest in like policy and things like that stem from which is why I was so excited when he basically opened, like Sibat basically opened about talking, um, like started the conversation talking about the project he, one of the projects he worked on, which was about clean energy. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that immediately I was like, oh my God, I didn't even think about this being like 
stuff that you're working on. <laughs> I think that's definitely the area of climate change that interests me the most as well. I had this conversation with, with my dad once and it kind of, it actually kind of succeeded at making him be like, huh, for a second <laughs> or two. Because I don't know if I've mentioned this to you before, but when we burn things like oil, like all the energy like contained in plant matter and in animals, it's ultimately from the sun, right? Like plants are plants are basically machines that take sunlight and convert it into like plant. They make themselves out of sunlight and then they die. And over millions of years, they get converted into, you know, little yeah. carbon molecules mm -hmm. that we then burn. Right. So it's just so self-explanatory when you think about it that way. You're like, okay, instead of like, waiting for the plants to capture the sunlight and then spending millions of years underground why don't we just capture the sunlight ourselves you know it's like skip that whole million year process <laughs> and yeah it's just so aggravating for me because eventually you're going to have to switch to renewables that's what i find is so sad like you're gonna have to because oil is going to run out mm -hmm. but it's just that i don't know if we're going to be able to do it in time and that's just the saddest thing to me yeah I feel like we're already running out of time, but yeah, there's that one. I, I don't remember if it was a Patriot Act episode or like one of the deep cuts on YouTube, uh, which is like their extra little thing. Um, but they were talking about how they basically have already extracted in the US all the oil that like if they burned it all, mm. it would go way over our goals for right. the temperature range that we want to be in. Yeah, but kind of talking a bit more about the intersection of technology and actually implementing it and also tying into nonprofit organizations. I got really into rock climbing last summer, <laughs> not actually doing it myself because of my health conditions, but just getting into watching documentaries about rock climbing and being really obsessed with this person called Alex Honnold. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if you don't know, Alex Honnold is a 30-something-year-old rock climber who is best known for his free solo of this cliff face in Yosemite National Park in the U.S., and that cliff face is called El Capitan. And free solo just means that he climbed it without ropes. Um, it's not like he just walked up there one morning and did that. <laughs> Obviously, he trained for a decade. He has specialized equipment. He's practiced the route with ropes. Um, but yeah, like that's what he's best known for. And so uh, I just kind of got really into Googling his life and just watching his interviews and that kind of thing. And through that, I came across his charity called the Honnold Foundation, which started off as just him donating a third of his income to various solar projects every mm -hmm. year. And then that kind of just morphed into a charity of its own that he started. And it's currently has only a few handful of employees. So it, it's pretty small. But what they do is they basically raise money and then they distribute that to various community-based smaller nonprofits. Um, so they really try to do, they basically try to fund projects that work very closely with the community and that would otherwise have trouble getting funding from, you know, someone like me, like someone in, I don't know, Singapore and like a, like a low income community probably wouldn't be able to reach me and my money on their own. Mm -hmm. um, but that's just kind of like a bit of the work that they do. Um, and yeah, I just I think it's really interesting and it's gotten me and I've been following some of the chats he's been having like every week on Instagram with various climate leaders and nonprofit leaders. And it's just, yeah, it's just nice getting a, actually getting a bit more concrete knowledge about 
how to go about clean energy transitions instead of just having it be this vague idea in my mind. So we're also going to link the Honold Foundation in the show notes because I think it's a great charity. So I'm going to promote it, put it out there. Yeah, I also want to plug some things just like completely related. I was watching a Simon Clark video um, and he's kind of like a climate scientist who now does YouTube like educational videos and interesting videos about it. And he basically made this video about like books you should read to understand climate change. Um, Mm, And mm -hmm. he gave the suggestion to what I think is like such an amazing book. It's called Drawdown by it says Paul Hawken. We can link it in the show notes as well. Um, And it's basically like outlining all the tech that we currently have that will be effective to reverse climate change. And the main argument of this book is like we have the tech. It's just about implementing it. Um, So he really goes into like what basically what we should be doing and just like making finding ways to make it happen Mm -hmm. yeah um so yeah i just i like can't believe a resource like this exists um so now it's like really our job to find ways to actually implement these things and the other resource is the united nations uh climate change carbon offset platform um and i think i've told you about this uh, a little bit before but it's basically like these projects that get vetted by the un um that are in developing nations that will offset climate change so it's usually renewable renewable energy um like projects so like solar farms wind farms um sometimes it's like um setting up a nuclear power plant um and you basically can fund it from different countries and the reason it's in developing nations is usually because it's just way cheaper to like build these things in those countries Hmm. like my plan is basically just to get rich and then throw money at these projects (laughs) (laughs) yeah but it's just like really cool because you can see like projects that you're contributing to and you can there's kind of this sense of satisfaction of like yeah i've fully funded this project and it's like gonna be built like it's a very concrete thing which is really interesting to see right i i do feel like with our generation with our all of our fears about climate change and all of our passions about preserving our ecosystems i think there is a lack of concrete steps we can yeah. take to do that 100%, besides yeah. reducing yeah like personal consumption yeah like one of my goals um that i put off this summer but that <laughs> i'm not planning on doing next summer is actually figuring out like what are the things that i should actually do to minimize my impact on the planet yeah because it's like if there's something that has an impact of negative 100 and there's something that has a negative impact of minus one I might be like just taking away that negative one thing and being like, okay, I'm like doing my part. Yeah, exactly. But I'm just, I just completely don't know like about like the negative 100 thing, you know, whether that be like buying this certain product or, you know, driving a car, like what actually are the things that make a difference? Yeah. So I definitely want to look into that. Yeah, I definitely agree with that sentiment. And I think also for a lot of people, it's, or at least for me, like in my life, I do want to limit my personal consumption, but I always want to do more than that. Um, Mm -hmm. And I just like, I just found these resources from being like, okay, what else can I actually do that will make like a sizable difference? Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I think like for people who are looking for that, it's like really good resources for that. Mm -hmm. So I guess tying that back to what we're actually supposed to be talking about in this discussion, (laughs) it just makes sense that having that intersection between science and business is important for actually having research have a positive impact on the world. Um, any other thoughts about our actual discussion topic? <laughs> yeah, I think this might be like something that I'm actually really interested in now. <laughs> but 
but yeah just like we brought this stuff up i think in previous discussions as well just like autonomy over his schedule and then spending a lot of his time like Mm -hmm. getting to read and write Mm -hmm. which to me is probably like my favorite part about like doing science work now is very much like Mm -hmm. reading papers and like getting to have this coherent understanding of a topic or an issue mm-hmm. um which i'm not a huge fan of like really sitting at the lab bench for hours on end <laughs> mm-hmm. um so yeah i think that's just like it's amazing that he has these really cool very scientific elements in his job still that's cool that you say that you like reading papers for me that's one of the hardest things or like maybe things i dread a bit I think it's worse when it's a topic I don't know much about. Like right now for one of my courses, I'm reading this paper that's talking about looking at the evolution of microbes in your gut Mm -hmm. um, and talking about mutations and that kind of thing for my microbial genetics course. Right. And it's rough. (laughs) Um, It's hard. And it's it's just because I don't know any of the terms. Yeah. But over the summer when I was reading papers that were more about immunology and breast cancer, I actually found that a lot easier just because I already kind of know the the techniques, like the molecular biology techniques and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, hopefully for me, that's something that will get easier if I'm you know, reading more papers that have are of a similar domain. Um, but yeah, I also I think I also do like the wet lab stuff. So maybe that's a good balance to have. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for me, like to clarify, I'm not saying it's at all easy. Like I totally still have a hard time reading papers. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I was taking like this grad course last semester. Sorry, was it last semester? Yes, last semester. So we had to read about two to four papers per week. And I literally had to do it like first thing in the morning with a big cup of coffee, like in a different oh, yeah, novel. You told me about that. <laughs> yeah. In a novel location. Yeah, just to like get full brain power. So yeah, it's definitely like still really hard for me, but I do genuinely really enjoy it. I just have a hard time focusing sometimes too. That's very fair. It's very intense work, isn't it? It's mm-hmm, yeah. You know how sometimes you're doing a task and your brain is like, it's working, but mm-hmm. it's not working. It's like the difference between run like sprinting and a calm jog. Yeah, for sure. Know? Yeah, so reading articles feels like sprinting. Yeah, it's like you have to be constantly focused on it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Any other tidbits about our discussion? You just mentioned offhand for a little bit that where he's working is open to kind of him pursuing higher education in the future. Mm-hmm. Does that mean like paying for him to do higher education? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. We should have asked him about that, what exactly he meant. Yeah, I was um, a little bit scared to ask, but yeah. Right. I don't think they would pay for it, but it would be like, okay, if you want to go out and you want to do an MBA, we can guarantee you can still get your position after the two years or something like that. Yeah, I think for MBA, some people might be like paid a certain percentage, like lower percentage Mm, of their salary. Right. Especially if you're doing it while you're working, now that I'm thinking about it. Like if you're a part-time MBA student kind of thing. Oh, yeah. I think that's like more common. Yeah, you're right. Right. right, That that actually makes more sense. It makes more sense than stopping your job for two years and then coming back. Yeah, so maybe that's that's more of what it's like. I mean, you can ask him when you yeah, have your private I might do little that. chat. Yeah, but that's just like so cool to me. Like, you don't have to worry about going back and finding a job. Like, you're basically mm-hmm. guaranteed a place, and you're getting an education and getting paid. Like, that's a sweet deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's also kind of similar to what Jessica mentioned when we interviewed her for last episode, episode yeah. three about medical illustration, where she mentioned that her company does these kind of lunch meetings, lunch yeah. learning meetings, where they teach you about latest technology and everyone just kind of discusses it and how 
continuing your learning is just part of the company atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So that's an interesting thread, I think, that we've been seeing in our interviews. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Super important. Anything else to add? I mean, we've talked about this like in the, I think, Jana interview about just like valuing autonomy in your position. Hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I just don't think I can be in a role that's like very much your boss is breathing down your neck. <laughs> and I wasn't aware how many positions there are in industries or in other organizations where you have a lot of autonomy. Um, so hmm. I think getting to learn more about positions that have that is really interesting for me. Actually, now that you mention it, I didn't even think about this before, but it just popped into my head. Being a TA has a bit of autonomy where I'm actually surprised at how many decisions they allow us to make. Yeah. You know, I think like I agree 100% in that they have a lot of autonomy and grad students in general, but like that's not like a long term job. (laughs) Yes, I know. I know. I know. I'm just I'm just thinking temporarily. It's what I'm trying to say is that it's it's nice. It's nice having the trust of the organizer that you're going to make your own decisions and that they're going to be good ones. Yeah, for sure. I think grad students have like probably the most autonomy out of like mm-hmm. most people, most jobs. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. All right. That's a wrap on our discussion. So to finish up the episode, as promised, we have our new segment, which is the trivia question. So Seabot has kindly provided this question for us and it is as follows. What is the total annual research funding received by the three Canadian grant funding agencies in the 2019 to 2020 year? A, 453 million, B, 925 million, C, 2.37 billion, or D, 3.69 billion. And for context, when we say three Canadian grant funding agencies, we're referring to the three that CBOT talked about, which are the CIHR and CERC, and then the third one for the social sciences. So this question will also be posted on our social media pages, and we will be giving out the answer one week from the day that this episode is released. If you're interested, you can comment what you think the answer is below our social media posts. This has been another episode of So You Got a Lifetime Degree with Sibat Anam about his role as a research proposals facilitator at Ryerson University. We want to give special thanks to our crew of lovely patrons, including our Little Leaf patron, Naeem. If you would like to support this podcast, you can visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash so you got a lifestyle degree. The music you're listening to is No Regrets from audiohub.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time. <laughs>